well, the investment time, let's invest. Like, okay, well, I'll go full in. Here's $300,000. So I invested $300,000 and thinking, cool, this is going to turn into a hundred. This is going to turn into millions for me. And was really blinded by the upside, just blinded by the upside and blinded by <laughs> the success of the two founders based on their previous experiences. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you based on the lessons I've learned from all of my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Tyron Giuliani. Tyron, are you ready to rock? I am. I'm excited, man, to embarrass myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, talking about losses in favor and mistakes is not necessarily embarrassing. It's an important aspect to teaching and learning. So... Let me introduce you to the audience. Tyron is an Australian entrepreneur, but after being injured and suffering a permanent disability while in the Australian army, he left Australia on a whim and moved to Tokyo, Japan. He had one suitcase, no friends, no family, and no Japanese language skills at all. Fast forward 22 years and he's still there speaks Japanese like a three-year-old, but has co-founded, founded, and partnered in three seven to eight-figure businesses. He started his first business, servicing weddings as an ordained minister. And that business provides wedding dresses now to over 420 weddings a month. Then he also works with 67 Fortune 500 companies to build their management teams in Asia. He also hosted Vice President Al Gore in Japan after winning his Nobel Prize to opening a K-pop event space in Tokyo. And since 2017, coaching other B2B business owners, his unique method of transforming LinkedIn from a stale resume profile approach to recreating your own personal mini website in LinkedIn and using a sales funnel there to land clients. My goodness, Tyron, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Great, great intro. So, yeah, based here since 1998. So I've seen a heap of changes, and you know, my life here is is pretty good. I can't complain. After you know, one suitcase. The last time I moved apartments, I needed two trucks. So I went from one suitcase to two trucks. My Japanese is yeah, is at a three year old level, and the reason I know that is because my three year old speaks better Japanese than I do. So. <laughs> And I still, to this day, 22 years later, I still don't like sushi. So I'm a, you know, one of those foreigners here that maybe on the outside you can look at and think, well, doesn't like, doesn't like sushi, doesn't like, he doesn't speak Japanese. What does he do there? And why is he still there? It's because I love the place. And I, I've just fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the society. And the country has just offered so much opportunity to me that in times of trouble that we see now around the world and, and uncertainty, being in a society where they respect one another so much, it's just a great place to live. So 
you know, I'm going to be permanent here. At least, you know, it'll be six months a year for the rest of my life. I'll definitely be out of Japan. So yeah, it's mm. context to, to why I'm still here, I guess. And when you think about your life, I mean, I can imagine that a lot of the listeners are trying to figure out, like they're trying to visualize what life is like living there. I mean, I, I know in Thailand kind of what my life's like, and I feel the same way about Thailand and Thai people, but I know that my life, my daily life and how my life goes here is going to be very different than if I was in your shoes. Just tell us a day in the life kind of perspective of what it's like for you living in Japan and what you like. Yeah. I think like any, when you've been in, in a location for any length of time, you know, you get into a routine and your life becomes, you know, I, I'd probably be doing the same stuff as I'm doing every day, just in any location around the world, because pretty much I work from my home office and, you know, I pick my kids up from school or they get delivered to my house. And I think the general normal everyday life is, is pretty similar for most folks in, in developed markets where the difference is, is as soon as I walk out of my door, I'm still, even after 22 odd years, I, I'm still in a foreign environment. You know, I'm in the minority now. You know, I'm the white guy walking down the street and everyone around me is, is Japanese. So, you know, I still get kind of preferential treatment because here in Japan, they like to, you know, guest to Japan. They like to go out of their way to make them feel comfortable. So even though I, they don't know I've been here 22 years, I still get special treatment. I still get kind of looked after. People will be more patient. People, So, you know, for me, it's being outside, still having that feeling of being a little bit special, which is kind of selfish, but it's kind of nice. Getting away with things that maybe you probably wouldn't be able to get away with as a Japanese person. I mean, I don't do crazy stuff and, and break the, the norms of society, but you don't have to follow all the rules. So I kind of get all the benefits of this awesome society and if I make a mistake or do something a little off, no one's going to, you know, worry about it because it's, oh, he's foreigner. It's okay. He can do that. So that's my everyday. And, and even after 22 years, I'm still learning something new every day because how I see myself now is I'm like a 22-year-old Japanese person, right? So just like mm -hmm. someone who's 22, you've still got so much to learn in your life. Well, I'm at the same stage. I'm learning the you know nursery rhymes now in Japanese and, and I'm learning stories that you know my wife's telling my kids that I probably should have learned when I was 16 in Japan and, mm. and now I'm learning at 22 in Japan so you know it's that's the layer that I really love is that I'm constantly learning something new every single day so there's always that fresh experience of oh I didn't know that oh that's different so that's what I love about it and that's the difference is just constant learning mm. I know that feeling in Thailand. In fact, just before this call, I had a meeting with a lawyer and he was speaking in Thai to me. So we were going through things and I realized, geez, I don't know much. I don't know the, the vocabulary of legal, you know, the legal area. I know the financial and accounting vocabulary mm -hmm. to some extent, but then it was like, okay, that's a whole new area. Right. Well, now, I just wanted to ask you some questions about LinkedIn because I know a lot of my listeners are professionals who do want to get more business or they want to take advantage of what's out there with LinkedIn. They know, they know what it is. They know there's something out there that they could be doing mm -hmm. and they just don't know kind of what's the first, second, third step to do. I wonder if you could just give some of your thoughts about what you do and what you know about LinkedIn. Yeah, for sure. So for me, you know, the LinkedIn was a really powerful tool because 
you know, one of the business where I was a partner was in executive recruitment. So we used it. It actually accounted for about 81% of our revenue came off the platform. We sourced our clients, we sourced our candidates all off the platform. And that, in, that translated multi-millions every single year, organically, free, right? So that's awesome. You know, cost to acquire a client is zero. Well, great. I do that all day. What I've seen on LinkedIn, it has absolutely transformed. I've been there since 2004. And even in the last two, three years, it's gone through a transformation. A lot of people are resistant to this, but really, and this term, some people say it's not like this, but it has become Facebook in a suit. That's what it is. And as much as people are, it's not, it's not, it is. Mm. People want to go onto LinkedIn and the primary thing is they want to be entertained. Right. So the idea of you going in there and posting how to's and sharing articles from business you know, magazines and blah, blah, that's long gone. That's five years ago. We're not there anymore. So you have to come with the approach that if you're going to put content out there, there's got to be an entertainment value to it. it has to be primarily entertaining and secondary. Yeah, maybe educational. But it's also seeing LinkedIn as a funnel. If you try to do one activity on LinkedIn and try to make money from it, you're just not. And there's really five elements. There's the profile. If you've got a resume, if you own a business and you're trying to get clients, why do you have a resume as your profile? Because what's a resume used for? Getting a job. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Get clients. So you're using the wrong tool for the task at hand. And I recommend transforming profiles more into like landing pages where we use those experience sections to showcase our key services. And we talk to our clients. So that's the first part is your profile has got to look different. It has to inform the reader about them, about what you can do for them, how others that have used you. The next thing, outreach. You've got to do outreach. A lot of people don't want to do outreach. The problem they don't do outreach is because the way they do it is horrible. It's horrible. People, you know, they forget the anatomy of a conversation. When we meet someone at a networking event, imagine if I walked up to you, you were wearing a pink suit. The first thing I would say is, well, Andrew, love that pink suit. Why are you wearing that? I'd ask you something about you. Now, if I walked up to you at a networking event, you're in a pink suit and I use LinkedIn language, this is what it looks like. Hi, Andrew, I'm Tyron. I'm the LinkedIn guy and I provide these services. If you're interested, here's my calendar. Would you like a book? You're standing there in a pink suit. <laughs> and I haven't said anything like crazy, right? But that's what people do on LinkedIn. So it's about putting in an outreach that is actually using the way we speak in real life, which is question, answer, question, question, opinion, right? There's a format, the way we speak. So it's emulating that in real life. And then the third and fourth and fifth part is what drives the inbound, which is doing content, nurture and engagement. And the strategies for that, that allow you to stay top of mind of people that allow you to engage and show yourself as a thought leader that attracts people to you. And it's, it's putting all of that then in a workflow process. So literally every day when you turn on LinkedIn, you're not there reading articles about Steve Jobs turtleneck sweaters. You're going in there, you're executing your plan, and then you're getting off with a result. So it's really about if you're not doing direct outreach, if you're not doing nurturing inside the inbox, because you've got to remember that it's called messenger now. It's not called an inbox. When someone messages you on LinkedIn, there's that big red dot above messenger. Mm. Have you ever not opened that, Andrew? <laughs> Never. You always open it. You see it, you open it. Well, you opened your inbox this morning on your normal email. How many did you just like delete, delete, delete? Like, oh, I subscribed to mm. that. You didn't even bother. 
Well, right. Where's the power? LinkedIn is so much power now. So if you're not utilizing that and putting in campaigns to nurture people, if you're not putting content out and your content can't be just business, 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 it should be swapped. It should be personal, 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 then a business post, then personal, personal, because people won't care about your business post until they care about you as a human first. It's as simple as that. So you've got to switch your mentality, come around by personal vulnerability, learning points, or in storytelling format, and get away from just doing business posts that just doesn't resonate on LinkedIn anymore, and then engaging on other people's stuff. And, and when you put all that together, that's what produces money on LinkedIn. It's interesting because uh, I occasionally will post something about my mom, and you know, because we live together here in Thailand and our coffee time or, you know, make sure to, but I, I always try to tie it back into work to some extent to say, you know, we're here on LinkedIn, working our butts off to try to be successful and grow our businesses, but don't forget to spend time with your mom or with your family or, you know, and I noticed that people really, they respond to it. They get inspired by it. So for those people that are like, they're kind of nervous about Facebook in a suit, maybe one of the ways to do it is to try to tie one of your non-business activities into a post like your daily exercise or your nutrition and how that helps you. And by doing that, you know, you're bringing value to people, but it's also kind of bringing people into your life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You will find if you, and I have a tool that analyzes all my personal LinkedIn, and then I can see the engagement levels. It is the personal post that win out 5X, 10X on business posts. It just is. Yeah. yeah. I just wrote, we have the CFA exam that just happened and people got their results. And I got my CFA many years ago and I was president of CFA society in Thailand, but I wrote a post called to the losers. And I mm-hmm. talked about how I didn't pass the first time and, and that it's about the perseverance and all that. And I know that that definitely got a lot of inspiration. I know there's a lot of people that didn't pass the exam and they were looking for something like that because they couldn't go out and say, I failed. Whereas everybody else was posting that they passed. Well, you know, that type of post is exciting and everybody's going to cheer that on, but that majority of people probably aren't passing. So, you know, that type of share. Let me just ask you one question for those listeners that say, I I think I really need some help on LinkedIn. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? I'm guessing. (laughs) Well, the good thing, I'm the only Tyron Giuliani in the world. So if you put Tyron, T-Y-R-O-N Giuliani, G-I-U-L-I-A-N-I, in LinkedIn, I will come up number one. Even if you put it in Google, I'll come up number one and just just message me on LinkedIn. Perfect. And I'll be able to help. Yep. Okay. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah. Thanks for that, Andrew. Look, as I said earlier off air, it was so hard to choose which which worst investment was the worst. And I I settled on this one. And I guess for people that have been in entrepreneur or entrepreneur endeavors for any length of time, the reality is you're going to have multiple. You just will. And this is what separates the winners from the losers is that regardless of when you make a mistake, you keep, you don't quit. You just don't quit. You just come back, you try again, you try again, you try again. And that's what helps you win. My biggest or worst investment ever, and it's a first just by a little bit of my second worst investment, really came down to a couple of things. 
And it's all connected to all my life in Japan, which is really interesting. So when I first ever came to Japan, the first thing I was doing was teaching English. So I got out of the army as an army officer. I came here just on a whim, just to like get out of being disabled and all the rubbish that was surrounding it. And I got a job from Australia to teach English here in Japan. As soon as I got here, I realized the potential and how much money was here and how many people were here. 30 million people in one city, the population of Australia, all in one place. I'm like, there's so much money. What am I doing? And I met a guy who was a CFO of a very, very famous Italian luxury brand company. I won't say their name, but they're black color and might rhyme with Rada. And I met the CFO and he became a good friend. And fast forward many years, I was a partner in a recruitment firm and we got in contact again with him. And he was then the CFO of Virgin, Virgin Cinemas here. And there was a really interesting time in Japan. Cinemas in Japan were really old school, really. It was a horrible industry, actually. And the cinemas were yucky and just not good at all. And this guy who was the president of Virgin Cinema created the cinemas in Japan, like brought Virgin Cinema and recreated and did a fantastic job and did an exit, was friends with Richard Branson and was quite a well-known guy. So my CFO was the, you know, the right-hand man for the CEO of that. So a few years later, I get a call from my CFO mate and he's like, oh, time, I've got an investment opportunity. I'm like, cool, because I'd been making some good money as a recruiter and I was feeling pretty good about myself. This is one of the lessons we'll talk about, but ego was a big thing for me. And I was feeling like the big man. I was late 20s and I'd made, you know, over a million bucks in recruiting. So I was like, I'm this, I'm that. And I met with the CFO and he introduced me to his old boss and his old boss who I knew as a, like, not a celebrity, but a business celebrity because, you know, he, he brought Virgin to Japan. He convinced Sir Richard Branson to give him the rights of doing Virgin. And I met with him and um, he had an investment opportunity. He had partnered up with an Emmy award-winning creative director who was also, I had already known of, because he had sold a company and exited for about 40 million or so to one of the big advertising agencies. And I was a recruiter for the advertising industry. So I, I'm like, cool, I've got, this is a new company. And it was a naturaceuticals company, naturaceuticals. So I thought, this is a kind of up and coming area. It's pretty good. This is about 2007 or so, right? I'm like, this is pretty good. And they're like, we're, we're starting a naturaceutical company and we're going to make it a $300 million company. That is our goal. We want to get to $300 million. We're going to be worldwide. We're going to be blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, this is awesome. Like, yeah, and this is the grand floor. We're putting a, a couple million bucks in each and blah, blah, blah. It's me as the president. So, you know, he's already done an exit. He was trusted by Richard Branson. Then I've got the other guy who's an Emmy award winning, who's done an exit. So that guy's going to do the creative. That guy's going to do the operational, put them together. Who can't see that as magic? Well, the investment time. Let's invest. Like, okay, well, I'll go full in. Here's $300,000. So I invested $300,000 and thinking, cool, this is going to turn into a hundred. This is going to turn into millions for me. And was really blinded by the upside, just blinded by the upside and blinded by <laughs> the success of the two founders based on their previous experiences. Very quickly, very quickly after doing that, probably six months in or whatever, it became very evident that the burn through of the cash was pretty high, that one of the partners was very, very 
was very much about testing, 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 testing. And one of them was more of the creative. And there was that constant conflict about like, just get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you've got to pull the trigger. And I could see that they were burning cash at a real high rate. And they developed some beautiful creative stuff. So I was like, this is cool. There was a big gap missing. There wasn't doing anything online. And fair enough, back then it wasn't so popular. If I fast forwarded today and launched that business now, man, this would be a hit. Absolutely Mm. would be because I would do it online. I'd make, I'd create funnels and it'd be awesome. But I could see that there was, it just wasn't going right. And then, but I kind of left it. I didn't kind of butt in. I just thought because they were, you know, way above where I had been. So I was like, okay, they'll kind of sort this out. This will kind of work. And I just kind of watched it and I didn't participate. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a voice. And when I got the, the investment sheet, I saw my, my percentage was only worth 1%. And it just, and I kind of let it slide. And, you know, I was, I didn't ask questions and I didn't, I wasn't curious. I, I thought this was my chair at the big boys table and that I could kind of go on there coattails and I just let it kind of run and very quickly they ran out of money and we thought okay we'll go and get a round of funding because they had the creative they've done some testing and they were testing on like late night tv shops and stuff like that so they were getting all the numbers and he was waiting for that perfect sweet spot and like okay great let's get it now let's just hammer it let's get it out into the media now these days it says you do it online with that budget man with that budget that we used <laughs> holy moly it would be a whole different ball game but they ran out well the problem is when we started going for money and we we're looking at other companies to invest in and there was interest, global financial crisis hit. Mm. So it was a perfect storm of all the testing and all the prep, getting ready to get ready was, was done. And then all the cash dried up, all the investment dried up. The partners could not work together. As much as they were friends at the start, by the end, they just could not work together and they just closed. They just ceased operation. And there I was with 300,000 bucks now worth zero. (laughs) And that was a kick in the guts. And of course I was embarrassed by it. And, you know, I didn't tell my wife about it probably like three years after. So I carried it as well because then she asked, Oh, didn't you invest like that? $300,000, you know, lucky I'd, other money, but it's still a nice chunk. And then like, because she had given me a hundred thousand to invest in some other stuff and I'd taken that and mm. put it in that as well. So she's like, where is it? I'm like, well, it's gone. And she's like, huh? But bless her cotton socks. She just said, well, look, you were doing it because, you know, what you knew, what you, you know, what you were trying to do was for the betterment of the family. So, you know, this happened, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of fault on me because Mm. at the same time, it was an untested, unproven, you know, I bought into a concept. I bought into an idea, which I never would do again. If I put that same money in Amazon stock back then, (laughs) you know how much it would be worth today? $19 million. Wow. $19 million. And instead I got goose eggs. So can you, can you remember like the day that you realized you'd lost it all? 
Yeah, I can. You know, it came via, I was getting these emails back and forth and I started to question stuff. I'm like, okay, what's happening? And like, it was very ambiguous kind of messages back. And then I just, hey, all right, let's call it out. What, you know, are you running it or have you stopped? What is the deal? Just yes or no. Literally it came down to a yes or no. And it was like, yes, you're right. We've stopped. And like, Boom. and one of the partners said, look, I'll try to make you whole again, which I, I thought he would. And he didn't in the end, mm. the main one who I had so much trust in just like abandoned all responsibility and, and fair enough. You know, it's a company. It was, you know, you invest. However, you know, they came to Japan looking for investors. They put, you know, he used and leveraged his name and stuff. So, you know, he sullied his reputation forever. Yes, he had a great success story in the past, but now I wouldn't touch anything with a barge pole. And if mm. I've seen, if anyone said to me, oh, I heard this guy is now doing this, I'll be telling them like, no. Mm. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I never want to talk bad about anyone, but the way they exited as well was really poor. Yep. You know, that, that's the other thing. I don't mind, you know, things fail. You know, I don't mind you invest in something, you know, there's a risk. But the way they exited was really, really bad form. So yeah. that was worse. Yeah. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? First thing, ego. My ego dominant. I wanted to be the big man. Like, oh, here's 300,000 bucks. That's nothing to me. Sure. Here you are. So I was, and I was showing off in front of my CFO mate you know, because he, he was investing as well, but he could only get a hundred thousand. So I went big, like, well, I've got 300,000 to invest. So it was, it was truly ego. And, and back then the money, it seemed like it wasn't going to stop. Like I was making money and it was kind of, I don't want to say easy because it's not huge money. Like, you know, we see these multimillionaires, mm-hmm. but you know, it was nice being young 20, you know, mid twenties with, in a foreign country, I'm the big man meeting with former CEOs of, you know, these global brands and stuff. So ego, ego, ego. The other thing was lack of knowledge. Like I just had no knowledge really of, and I didn't ask the right questions at all. Like what would the investment, when would I get it back? You know, what does this investment represent in your business? I mean, it was just looking back on such a lack of questioning such a lack of knowledge about investing in a private company um, and understanding early stage companies and where they are. So anyone that is listening, who is a young person looking at their first investment, unless you truly know what you're doing, you know, you don't have to be the, the practitioner, but know the questions, have another person's eyes look at it, you know, have a second, mm-hmm. third set of eyes, fourth set of eyes. Like, yeah, I had my mate who was a CFO of a famous brand, but even he was like probably, you know, because it was his former boss and everything he's feeling. And this boss was a younger hotshot. I think we both were like blown away. Like, oh, we have this opportunity. So, you know, I didn't do that. I didn't mm. have a second. I didn't have anyone connected to the deal. I mean, I didn't have anyone not connected to the deal. Check it out. Yep. Okay. And I should have done that. So ego, lack of knowledge, lack of curiosity. Mm. Just, yep. yeah, that's resulted in what happened. So let me summarize what I took away from it. First of all, after interviewing so many people, I've come up with six common mistakes and I would say, Two of them probably were at play here. First one is failed to do their own research. So there's a lot to look into before you give anybody any money. And the second one I would say is probably misplaced trust. 
And that leads me into kind of some of the other things that I took away. Basically, it's the inner circle concept. You know, once you get some money, big people ask you, hey, you should come on in on this or whatever. And you get this big, you get this inner circle concept, like I'm being invited into the inner circle. And then you said blinded by the upside, which makes me think about, you know, that's exactly what happens. You get blinded by that inner circle, by the upside, and you think, oh, this is the way it works. Now I'm here. But what I would say is that never trust, just, you know, basically look at everybody and everything equally. Don't trust any situation with your money. Feel free to ask questions and have a right to ask questions. I think that's a a next point that I would make is that when it comes to our money and, and our life, we have a right to ask questions. And if we're going to invest in something, we absolutely have the right. In fact, in the world of finance, CFA Institute has come up with 10 investor rights. And one of them is that you have a right to ask for detail about what the investment is. And you have a right to a good answer. If you don't get it, you have a right to ask again. The last thing I would say is that also failure in business is not illegal. Now, there are some countries where it's getting close. Italy, as an example, I've had some guests on that have talked about that failure in business can be very devastating in some countries. But generally, what is illegal is fraud. So if you find yourself in a situation where your business is falling apart and you've got to exit it, make sure that you don't do fraud. Be honest with the situation. Nobody can hold you to account. If you've started a business, you've done your best and it didn't work out. And that brings me to the last point. It's a little bit like breakups and relationships. Most breakups get ugly. And they're just ugly exits, as I wrote down when you were talking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it happens. I think you got to, as long as there's no fraud involved, which if there is, you know, you've got another case that you got to fight. But the point is, is that, yeah, sometimes, you know, breaking up is ugly. And you've either got to decide... I want to maintain these relationships and therefore I'm going to work hard to keep it, which I ended up doing with one of my investments where I really felt like the relationships were more important to me than the money that I lost. Although I lost a good amount of money and I wasn't happy about that, but there's plenty of other times that it's just, you know, it's never pretty. So those are some of my thoughts. Anything you'd add to that? No, that's a, that's a really great list. And the thing is to keep that at the forefront, you know, because even over the last two months I've made, multiple investments that are, you know, six figure. And, you know, I, it took a, a lot longer to pull the trigger and a lot more questions. And I've got to remind myself, especially the inner circle, the inner circle is a really dangerous circle to get into um, <laughs> because if you're at the bottom of the heap in that inner circle, those guys can afford to have 10, 15, 20 fails in a row because it's a small portion of their money. Mm-hmm. If you're coming in, it's a larger portion. You might, be only able to make two or three errors before you're back at zero. So um, yeah, the inner circle, that's a really good one because sometimes that is a, a double-edged sword because they're just thinking like, well, you're in here as well. You're like us where you're not. They're at a yep. whole different level. Their emotional, their attachment to money, their attachment to deals is completely different to when you're at a, a first time deal. So think of it like you're walking, you know, through a, a hotel or a bar or whatever, and you find these three guys at a table playing poker and they really, really want you to join their table. Come over here, play poker with us. <laughs> you know nothing about yeah. them and yeah. uh, they're going to welcome you into that table, but you may be very ill prepared for what's about to happen. So <laughs> based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action 
would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would say have two extra set of eyes that are not involved in the deal at all do the due diligence, do, give you an assessment. Mm-hmm. That probably, that one thing probably would have saved me at least seven, multiple seven figures over yep. the last yep. 20 years just by doing that. And again, it comes down to me trying to be the big man. And, um, you know, I've learned that a couple of times. It took a couple of times <laughs> to yep. learn it. But that one thing, just two independent people with, that aren't attached to it and that, that have something else, you know. Powerful. It just helps. Great advice. So for the listeners out there, if you're getting into something, you think it's great, stop, find two other sets of eyes to look at it who are independent, thoughtful people, sit down with them, go through it, and try to try to pick it apart. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Next 12 months. I'm really excited for the next 12 months because, you know, I've gone through a stage where I, I, I've been growing and then I, I kind of plateaued out for the last couple of years where I've just been comfortable. I've been making money and I've been comfortable. And then I, I met a couple of new people that are really there at the next level. And I was thinking, what am I doing just being comfortable now? I'm only 46. I know some young people might think that's old, but when you're 46, you don't feel 46. You feel like 26. So, mm. I'm actually, I'm learning more about investments, funny enough, but business buying. I'm, I'm looking at doing uh, some roll-ups in the USA within the staffing industry. So IT staffing, I've made some connections. And my mission over this year is to bring three to five staffing agencies together, consolidate them, make it better, and then sell it a year and a half, two years out for, you know, for a nice figure. So that is my goal for the next year. And I've, I've, I've hired two mentors for it. I've partnered with three other people who've experienced in it. So I'm stacking this one all in my favor as much as possible before I even pull the trigger. So this, you know, this one really, I, I'm looking at all the bases I'm trying to cover, but that's my goal for the year. Yeah. Exciting. Can't wait to talk in a year. Yeah. Be awesome. <laughs> all right. Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to reduce risk in your life by going to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and downloading your risk reduction checklist that I've created from all of the interviews I've done. See how you measure up. As we conclude, Tyron, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, look, set aside your ego, any deal. If it looks, it's the old adage, if it looks too good to be true, <laughs> it's probably not. Always get someone to uh, you know, look over stuff for you. That's just money there for you, sir. Mm-hmm. Beautiful advice. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.